This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Dan, I think in the analogy of resilience as a bouncing ball on the sidewalk, at times I feel like I'm an egg. <laughs> you just crack and fry. <laughs> the crack and fry on the hot pavement. That's me. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn the meaning and power of resilience in your graduate training. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 159. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Hey, Josh. Great save. Almost said 158. That is not correct. It is 159. I just read what's on the page in front of me. We had, we copied and pasted. Uh, so anyway, we're doing great. <laughs> Things are going well. Uh, Josh, we have not had mu- enough of this beer to explain our inability to read words off a page. That's right. I just poured a beer that I picked up, Dan, and this is a beer from the UK. Not my alma mater, University of Kentucky, I assume. Not, Dan, the United Kingdom, our friends from across the pond, as they say. This is the Eagle Brewery Banana Bread Beer. And this is a fun, look at this label. It's a bright yellow label. You've got a banana being peeled uh, with a beer glass coming out. But I want to point out something, Dan. Look at this photo of this banana that has been peeled. It's not a photo. It's a drawing. (laughs) Look at this drawing of the banana being peeled. Okay. This is upside down from how I peel a banana. Oh, yeah. The, usually you peel, pull down the stem end, don't you? You know, I do, but then I have heard others say that a better way to peel the banana is from the non-stem end. Yeah, I, I think it works. I think I've done it, and I'm pretty sure that if you've ever seen a monkey open a banana, that's how they do it. They bite that's what that, I was going to say. Bite that other, and then they use the stem as a handle. Which is probably a better way. I'm like looking up... <laughs> videos of monkeys peeling bananas. Okay, uh, keep, keep on topic, Josh. We can discuss the power of banana peeling methods later. Uh, what do you think of a banana bread flavored beer? Well, I like banana bread, and I like beer. And? Let's see. I'm going to try this one. So I have to say that after I took a taste of the beer, I had to look at the label to see if there was any description of what's in this beer. And the label says that fresh bananas pack a whole bunch of aromas while rich malty hops deliver a seriously fruity flavor. I really get fake banana flavor. That's what, it, that's what it's reminiscent, like banana candy. Yeah, and I think that flavor is based on an extinct banana. Uh, we'll post an article in the show notes about the uh, banana called Gros Michel that was the original uh, worldwide cloned banana that went extinct we now have the cavendish banana that's about to go extinct but all of the chemistry for banana flavoring came out of that older banana so it does taste like banana just not our bananas although they claim this is real bananas i don't know what to tell you josh i agree with you there's also a a very bitter bite at the end um and i don't know if the beer got a little skunked or if you think that's the hops which one well this is a fairly uh fairly low ibu so i don't know maybe Maybe on the boat ride over. <laughs> or you know what it actually tastes like a little bit? What's that? And this could just be the power of suggestion of oh. you talking about uh, banana flavoring. The peel. No, it tastes a little bit like aspartame does. That oh. fake sweetener, you know, that yeah. um, extra chemical-y flavor at the back? I don't know. Anyways. I feel you. 
not probably going to be ordering this one a lot. Uh, Josh, I want to make sure we thank our sponsors at Promega. Uh, you know, being a scientist is more than just running experiments and analyzing data. Whether you're giving a presentation at a conference or writing an article on your research results, Promega can help. Head to the Student Resource Center to check out webinars on scientific writing and poster presentation. Just visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. Also, we want to thank our friends at BioBox. You know, research can move slowly, but you don't have to. Accelerate your research with BioBox Analytics. You can analyze and explore your genomic data on demand with no coding skills required. You can sign up for free at biobox.io. All right, Josh, let's get on with the show. All right, Dan, we're going to talk about an important topic today, resilience. That's right, and I'll take this opportunity at the beginning, before, before we get into the interview, to say this connection came from a listener that said, you know, I worked with this person, Adina Glickman at Stanford, and you absolutely have to talk to her. She talks so much about graduate training and the things that affect graduate students. You have to, have to, have to talk to her. So, uh, so thanks to Alana for making that connection. I got a chance to sit down with Adina, and we talked about her work on resilience, uh, particularly for graduate students. So Josh, take a listen, and let's connect afterwards. Today, I am joined by Adina Glickman. Adina served as the Director of Learning Strategy Programs at Stanford University for 18 years, where she founded the Stanford Resilience Project. She co-founded and is currently co-director of the Academic Resilience Consortium. She's the author of The Resilient Learner, Eight Pillars of Student Success, among other works, and is the CEO and founder and academic coach at Affinity Coaching. Adina, welcome to Hella PhD. Thank you. So nice to be here. A few of the things I just read in your bio, the Stanford Resilience Project, the Academic Resilience Consortium, a book called The Resilient Learner, I'm detecting a theme in your work. You seem to be very focused on resilience. So can we start there and talk about what that means? Sure. Well, you know, I, I think, first of all, resilience, when you try and think of it as an individual trait, you know, it's like something you have to acquire as vertical walking human beings, we are hardwired to be resilient. We are born resilient. You know, if you imagine one of our first tasks as humans is to get up on our feet. And that is our one of the earliest manifestations of our resilience. You stand up on your feet, you fall on your butt. A few hundred and- times. And it's not just that you're like, I'm determined to get up and it's your brain is learning, your inner ear is learning, your muscles are learning, everything's changing to to make sense of, oh, what was that fall about? Let me see what I can do differently. And let me see what what my what my body and my brain can do differently so that I don't fall down. That's what resilience is, is I fell on my butt. I want to get back up and I have a drive to get back up. I don't want to feel, I don't want to sit on my butt my whole life. What did I, what did I learn from that? What did I get? What meaning can I make from that? What different thing can I do so that I don't fall on my butt next time? That is, that is such a helpful definition. It is, it is learning and growing from failure as opposed to wallowing or quitting or all of the Mm -hmm. other things we can do in response to failure, blaming um, I mm-hmm. can imagine a lot of different ways that we can be non-resilient. Or assuming that there's something pathological about failure. 
that was what we tried to do at Stanford was normalize that failure is. It's part of life. It's part of learning. It's part of growing. It's part of being human. And, you know, resilience to me is, first of all, I differentiate it from grit and perseverance, which are important, fantastic traits. But I think that perseverance and grit are sort of seen as traits of the individual. And I really see resilience as something that's much more about context. You know, if you imagine one of the, one of the perennial images of resilience is the bouncing ball, bouncing back, right? bouncing back from adversity, from failure. And imagine a ball bouncing on a nice hard surface. It, it'll bounce back, right? But if that surface is a soft, cushy mattress, it won't bounce. It will thud. No matter the, the makeup of that ball, it could be bouncing in another exactly. situation, but not that one. Exactly. So context really matters, I think, in resilience. And especially when we're talking about uh, academic resilience, which is so much uh, impacted by the academy and the institution that surrounds that bouncing ball. And you really are focused on the concept of resilience in academic settings. You work with students of all levels, don't you? Yes, um, from high school through graduate school and also with uh, young professionals. And this concept of resilience, I think it really resonated with me when I started to read some of your work because that feels like a core feature of what helps a graduate student succeed in ways that I don't feel like I needed when I was in, in high school in the same ways, or maybe I had the skills to adapt and be resilient in high school. I got to graduate school, and many people do, and it was, it was the ball hitting some other surface and <laughs> really falling flat. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when, you know, high achievers, people who do well in their high school and undergraduate training get to graduate school and that environment is so different. Can you talk about what happens with them? Yeah, I mean, the environment, I, I think it's helpful to sort of enumerate and parse out what is different about the environment. First of all, when you're in graduate school, you're older. You may have financial and family obligations and commitments that you didn't have when you were 17, 18, 19. Uh, but also, so, so, the, so your, your life stage is different, but, but the environment itself is different. Graduate school is notorious for being an amorphous and diversely organized place to learn. You know, some some majors are very structured. Some PhD programs have a very clear path. There are very clear expectations. Your dissertation proposal is expected to be your first published article after your second year. You know, there's very, very clear benchmarks. And other programs, it's it's very unclear and it's very inconsistent what the expectations are, what the lab expectations are, what the te- uh, the teaching expectations are, what your own research expectations are. So, so there's a lot that's it's very varied and it's very amorphous. It's hard to give advice to all of those different people. Well, it's hard to give, give advice, but I think that for the person who's in any of those situations, it's hard to look around and say, 
here's where I should be. Right. And that's one of the things that I think young, you know, young people in the world need to be able to say, I situate myself here. I can tell looking at other people and looking at what other, uh, what other experiences are, whether I'm on track or not, and whether I'm being uh, overworked or underutilized or it's all, it's all a moving target. It is. This idea of resilience is really, it is a response to a problem, right? Resilience isn't, I'm talented and everything goes well for me. Resilience is bad things happen and somehow I bounce back. And, and so I'm interested in the notion of how I typically will try to, to hide my failures in life. But when you were working with the Stanford Resilience Project, and I'd like you to say some more about that, you kind of turned that on its head, right? You weren't focused on hiding the problems of the situation. I basically, I gathered a bunch of like-minded folks at Stanford, and we all talked about how we wanted to to help students feel more, uh, less risk averse and more able to say, oh yeah, that, that got messed up. What, what can I learn from it? So our emphasis was always on getting people to share stories and in some kind of public way, either making a video that we would put online or we would have live events where people would share a story and the the whole thing was aimed at allowing students to look at other people, other students, other professionals, and say, that's what you do with it. You know, eventually you tell a story about it. Eventually you find a way to fold it into your, your own narrative of your life so that it has a place. You know, it's not something that you shove away or, or pretend didn't happen you use it. Do you find that storytelling is more important for the audience or more important for the person who went through the resilient experience? I think it's important for both, you know, I, but I think, you know, one of the things that I, that I kind of push back on, I looked, I actually, I have the 1959 Oxford dictionary that defines resilience in a very physics-y way. And if you look at dictionary.com, which is a contemporary definition, speed and ease are added. You know, resilience is the ability to bounce back easily and quickly. And I really push back at the idea that it's easy or it's fast. It takes time to get that perspective and to be able to learn lessons and to be able to make meaning out of things that are really important. So. So the idea that the narrative is, you know, the narr- your original question, the narrative is important to both because developing the narrative helps you find that meaning and hearing other people helps you find perspective on your own experience. That's helpful. And, and I think, I, at least from my experience, a person who has experienced failure, uh, who is listening right now, shouldn't expect the narrative to be very clear necessarily right away. And and it can take time. And I think, you know, be patient with yourself as you try to process the, the failure and learn from it, as we've been talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons people talk a lot about during the pandemic, during the most acute times of the pandemic, 
You know, why aren't people resilient? Why aren't we like bouncing back? Because we're still in it. You know, I, I compare it to 9-11, which was a single day of profound tragedy. And then the next day, we were recovering from it in some way. And we were starting that, that path of, of distance, making it our history that we could then look back at and make sense of. The pandemic has been an ongoing chronic problem that we're facing we're not past it yet so we can't look back we can't look back and say how do we make sense of that incredibly tragic year and that incredibly confusing uncertain time how do we make sense of that we can't until we have enough distance from it but it will be interesting to analyze and i think people have have begun to do this the way the context, the surface that we are bouncing off of can either help or hinder us with the pandemic in graduate school, in society. I think that'll be a fascinating frame uh, as we think about those things. Absolutely. And one of the things that I, that I, you know, I have a lot of students who, who I talk to about applying to graduate schools and like, what am I going to tell them I did during this pandemic year? Like, oh, what a great story that's going to make that's going to contribute to your application to graduate school. Absolutely. And incorporating that into your story and, and demonstrating your resilience. You now have, right. you now have a, a surface that you bounced off of uh, to be able to use. Um, yeah. You, you wrote this book, The Resilient Learner, The Eight Pillars of Student Success. And I know that some of these will apply more to people who are in undergraduate or, or high school. But there are a couple of these pillars that I think apply very specifically to graduate students. And I, I want a little bit of your help understanding what they mean. Sure. And, and so the first one is that the student uses autonomous skills outside of the classroom. And can you tell us what that means, an autonomous skill, and, and how this is one of the pillars of being resilient? Well, autonomy is the exercising of self-driven behavior. And outside of the classroom relies almost exclusively on that. There may be structures, and again, in graduate school, the structures may be hard almost to come none. by. <laughs> right. Deadlines, due dates, very fluid. So the skills that, that people use outside of the structure of the classroom or the structure of the research that they're doing, those make up, you know, how, how you spend your time, how you set your own deadlines, how you read, how you digest and make sense of the, you know, the literature that, that's part of your field. Those are all skills that are very intimate and in, internal and are assumed, I think, often to be intuitive and aren't. I 100% agree. Many of the things are just never part of any undergraduate training. And you show up to graduate school and you sit in a room for a journal club. And it seems like everybody there knows what it is, what they're supposed to be doing with this paper. And mm -hmm. you sit there and think, well, I don't even know how to interpret these figures, let alone understand the science behind it or the thousands of acronyms. Right. So it really is a fish out of water experience to not have mm -hmm. some of those autonomous skills before you mm -hmm. land in graduate school. It's great to be able to have them when you land. I think for most people, it's 
first of all, important to know that there's nothing wrong with you don't ha- if you don't have them, and they're eminently developable. Um, you can you can grow these skills. You can learn these skills. But you know, one of the personality traits of graduate programs is that it's a club. You know, mm-hmm. the academy is a club. It's an exclusive club, and as much of the technical and academic language that's used in papers and the environment of we're not going to tell you what the rules are is about is I think a sort of way of maintaining the sanctity of that club. I've never thought about it that way, but I've, I've felt it. Yeah. You have to think this is elite. We worked hard to get into this club. You have to work hard to get into this club. We're not going to tell you what the, what the, what the best path is because nobody told us. And to be a viable member of this club, you have to do a lot of independent searching and development to show that you belong here. And there's, a, there's a bit of a sink or swim mentality in some programs. Some are very supportive and helpful, and some are, we're going to weed out half the class in the first year, which is yeah. much more club-like. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, there's an effort, a, a lot of a lot of people and a lot of institutions maintain their status and their viability as business, you know, as, as part of an industry by maintaining a kind of elitism that intimidates and excludes. And that adds to the prestige because there are so few that have, have passed through the program. Exactly. Is, is this a part of I'm skipping a bit ahead a bit, but one of the pillars is the student has an understanding of their educational institution. Is that what you're talking yeah. about here? That that the student actually somehow gets a hold on this cultural piece and and some of the I, I don't even know how you describe it because I'm not yeah. doing a good job. No, that's no, that's that's absolutely right. The student needs to know not just you know what the written policies in the handbook are. They need to know that, oh, my school doesn't have a written handbook for graduate students. What does that say about what they think about their responsibility in supporting or guiding me? They haven't written me a handbook. Or what the, what the tacit culture is around publication or uh, TAing. They need to know kind of what the rules are, and most of them are unspoken and carried forward through nuanced tradition. And the danger is that you wait around for help, thinking eventually somebody will tell me how to approach this. And if there is no culture of (laughs) helping you through this process, you're going to wait around forever. And you need to find another path. You need to talk to other students or find a mentor or something. And then the way that's seen is, oh, look, that person with that, you know, that independent uh, go get him spirit, that's the person who we really value. We, we laid out this confusing, amorphous nothing for them, and they found their way. That's what, we, that's what, a, that's what you need to be able to, that's the muscle you need. They have grit. Yeah. <laughs> to and use that term the wrong way. And, and that's Gritty. what's valued. This this feels like it ties in with another pillar that you write about, which is the student feels a sense of belonging within their school. But but it is subtly different. Talk a little bit about what it means to 
what it means to belong, but also what it means to feel like you belong. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a very lovely distinction. the The sense of belonging. This is based on Greg Walton's work, who you know found that at the undergraduate level, the students who went who who uh, were exposed to an intervention that helped them develop a sense of belonging did better academically. The sense of belonging is everything from, um, I think, what what people would say is the the opposite of the the imposter syndrome. You know, I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. I don't belong here. All the way to, you know, I'm just thinking about freshmen who show up on campus, and if they see a group of students talking together, they think, oh my god, they have friends already. What's wrong with me? They may not have friends already, but that's the assumption. Exactly, exactly. It's the assumption that they've got something that I don't have, and so I'm an outsider. So one of the most effective things that graduate students can do is talk to other graduate students and be leaders in their willingness to reveal how outside the loop they feel. You know, if you ask most people to reveal in public that they feel outside the loop, they won't. But if you get two people talking to each other, they'll both confess, yeah, I, I, I don't get what's going on here. I don't know how to, I'm like so freaked out by this. And once you feel like you have a partner, once you feel like you're not the only one, that creates a sense of belonging. It feels like a contradiction to say, I need to admit that I feel like I don't belong in order to break down that barrier. But but you're so right. I can distinctly remember being in meetings with other graduate students, and some people would come with a, a posturing, a sort of uh, invincibility, a, a false confidence, or you know, it appeared as confidence to the rest of us, I suppose. And that was more distancing. That made That made me feel you know, less like I belong because, wow, they must really have everything together. Whereas Mm -hmm. talking about failures would have been, (laughs) would have made me feel more like I was a normal human being. That's, that's absolutely true. Can we touch briefly on the growth mindset? Because I think this is another, it's another shift in frame for a graduate student who maybe has been successful in everything they've tried before in their lives and they, they hit their first failure um, I know about growth mindset because I have young kids who have watched Sesame Street, but can you tell us uh, about Carol Dweck's research? Sure. Well, Carol did a lot of interesting uh, research that, that demonstrated essentially that, that if you look at intelligence as something that is malleable and can be affected by time on task and effort and return to task after frustration that when things become truly challenging, the response is, oh, this is what we do when it's hard, as compared to students who, who have sort of learned that you've been kissed by God and you are gifted and have a great brain and that's what you've got, you know, that's, that's who you are. And when, when you're met with something that's more challenging than you know how to reckon with, you think, oh, well, I guess I've reached the limit of my smarts, or I guess they lied to me and I 
I'm not as smart as, but you don't have a way, a mechanism for interacting with the frustration or the, or the challenge that you can't, that you can't work. It's a dead end. So, so the idea is that a lot of high achievers have been what she calls praised into failure, you know, Oh, you're fantastic. You're great. And then the student feels like, Oh, okay. That's, that's my identity. And it's not based on, well, you worked really hard at this because in fact they did, you know, no one, no one pops out. You know, people talk about Mozart being, you know, he, he came out that way. No, he didn't. He had an incredibly intense father who, you know, lorded over him that he had to practice, practice, practice. And he didn't come out a musical genius. His first symphonies were awful. Nobody wants to listen to those. It took time and effort and practice and attempts for him to be as good as he as he was. But that's that's not the the history we hear. We we hear this right. child genius <laughs> could write right. symphonies. So for my kids, I think Sesame Street and some other places have incorporated this this learning, and mm-hmm. they they talk about the power of yet. And so if my if my son says I can't play this song on the piano, I you know we say yet you can't play it yet. Uh, yeah. I can't ride this bike. I can't ride this bike yet. And yep. It encourages them and encourages me to try something else, to to do the resilience, to um, to learn from the falling down, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's so important. And again, maybe not something that a graduate student has experienced up until this point, but I can guarantee failure will come, and you will need mm-hmm. this. I think the problem that that people face in graduate school is that, and this is one of those nuanced cultural elements, it's not always clear that the club wants you to be a member. You know, sometimes, and, and, you know, there are a lot of mixed messages and, you know, you'll say, well, they let me into this program. So they had some kind of faith in me. And this happens, I think, for particularly for women and people of color, Mm -hmm. they let me into this program, which means they want, they, they, they want me to succeed. Right. But look at all the things that they're doing that are making it impossible for me to succeed. I don't get it. And and I think that there's a lot of ambivalence within the academy of saying, you know, we want women and people of color in STEM fields, but do we? And what are the steps we're going to take to to make the context, to make the surface suitable for helping them succeed? Right, right. And if they and if they can't succeed, if they're struggling, maybe that's just the evidence that we needed to say that they're not cut out to be here. I'm, I'm going to recommend people read the book and and through the pillars because I think there's an infinite amount that we won't be able to discuss. But I want to ask you a really difficult question, which is: we have some people who who listen who are administrators or faculty members or program uh, operators, and if you could give them advice, what would what would what should they be doing to improve graduate training, to improve that context um, for their students, make them more resilient? Be honest, be real. One of the things that most you know, just like just like the student will look at other students who are talking to each other and think they already have friends, 
students will look at, at professors and administrators and say, they've got it all figured out. So one thing is to be able to share how not everything is figured out. And, and you know, the, the first set of, of interviews that we did for the Resilience Project, we got big names to say, here's how it's not all working out for me. You know, I just tried to get something published and it was returned with a million pages of red ink. So sharing your own story, sharing your own current stories, sharing your own struggles, just on a human level. But I think the other part of it is when a student shows up and says, this is what I'm experiencing and this is what my perception is, to validate it and say, yep, you're not crazy. This is what's actually, this is why you're getting that message. This is why this is happening. This is why it's so complicated or uh, amorphous a process. A student sits down and says to the, the professor, I don't feel like I fit in here. I wonder if I need to go. And for, no, 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 you do fit in. No, 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 no. Don't feel that way. Everybody loves you. And and I think what you're saying is the opposite. You You feel this way. And you're not crazy. And there are all of these things that probably lead you to feel that way. Right. We did one video at Stanford where professors talked about what they did and didn't do. And one, one professor said, it took, me, it took me nine or 10 years to feel like I fit in here. And I've been here for 10 years. Wow. You know, so wow. for a faculty member to say to a student, you don't feel like you fit in here? Oh, man come to a faculty senate meeting. I feel like I don't belong there at all. So it's a real experience and it's not the truth. It's not, the feeling isn't necessarily the fact. So yes, it's very common for people to feel. The, the response to the student who says, I don't feel like I fit in here is, yeah, most people feel like they don't fit in here. They probably do and that will change eventually, but that's a normal feeling to have. You're not crazy. This has been extraordinarily helpful for me and and hopefully people will want to follow your work and get in touch where can they find you and some of the projects you're working on online they can find me they can email me at adina glickman at gmail.com or they can go to my website and sign up for right get right on my calendar for a free consultation at adina glickman.com well thank you so much for joining us today been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Daniel. Dan, I think in the analogy of resilience as a bouncing ball on the sidewalk, at times I feel like I'm an egg. <laughs> and you just crack and fry. <laughs> crack and fry on the hot pavement. That's me. That is That probably describes <laughs> some graduate training programs, Josh. Yeah, and that's what we that's what we want to avoid. We, we definitely uh, do not want you cracking and frying before you exit your training and launch into a, a successful and fulfilling career. But so I think some great ways of thinking about resilience and, and thinking about your, your time in graduate school during that interview. I'm not, I'm not convinced there is a more important set of skills. I think a lot of what you expect to need coming into graduate school, I need to learn a lot of biology or chemistry or whatever. You, you do need all of those things as a background. But the life experience, the life skill of figuring out a way to move on from failure, that feels unique and something that you probably have not trained for, um, but it's going to be critical to your success because you will fail. 
you know, I, I work and think a lot about the admissions side of graduate school. And this is something that comes up all the time. And, and I think some of the data that we have on, on student admissions and particular predictors of student success make a lot of sense in the context of, of this resilience conversation in that, you know, things like past academic performance in school, like GPA doesn't always mean you're going to be a hundred percent successful in graduate school. And at least anecdotally, one of the stories we tell that I think does bear out uh, sometimes is maybe you're a student who really had were smooth sailing through classes, right? You know, you you got straight A's and and coursework was was easy for you. And if there's a unifying theme of graduate school, I think everyone is going to fail at some point. It's just a hallmark of research. And being able to bounce back from that, not letting that inevitable failure crush you is actually a, a feature or trait or the more developed that sense of, of resilience is coming in uh, can really help you persist. But, you know, Dan, I think that's not to say that there are certain types of people that can succeed in grad school and others who can't. Mm-hmm. So as Adina was, was mentioning, it's important to just be open about your, your failures because you are not unique. And I think sometimes where where we really do struggle is we feel like, the failure is unique to us. We're the only one who's not succeeding. And and that's just not true. Yeah, and that sounds like the real power of the Stanford Resilience Project of having people get up and talk about their failures and wrapping their story around it. Josh, you mentioned persisting. And she and I talked a little bit about grit and how it's different from resilience. But we didn't... Um, I, I've read some of her work and, and listened to some of her other interviews, and I wanted to just take a minute to talk about the difference between grit and resilience. She has mentioned in some other interviews that there are times when the failure teaches you you should stop at the thing. So you and I have both done the experiment that resilience doesn't mean try it again and again and again and again. Resilience means, hey, this is not a good experiment. I need to do a different thing. And I think you know, we, we take this idea, oh, grit, you just have to pick back up and do it again and do it again. And that's not what this is. This is, this is really about a learning process. So I just wanted to make that really clear. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, an important distinction. You know what that harkens me back to a little bit, Dan, is an episode we did a long time ago with uh, Dara Wilson Grant, where she talked about being aware even sometimes about your feelings when you succeed, right? And yeah, it's about when to quit. Yeah, having is, you know, it makes sense. You have a failure. Um, you have a failure or a setback, and that brings you down, and that's going to happen. And I think part of this resilience conversation is bouncing back from that. But when we succeed, if you still feel down <laughs> about that, uh, then maybe that could be an indicator that uh, maybe it is time to move on. Josh, I've, I've been thinking about the bouncing and, and the surface and about who belongs in grad school and who feels like they belong. And it occurred to me that I was, I was like a half-deflated beach ball and I was headed for the sand and I was about to not bounce, <laughs> right? But, you know, I tried to quit. I tried to drop out of grad school. And it was my PI who said, no, 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 stay. We're going to make this work. So somebody tipped me back up into the air. It wasn't because I was resilient. I was, I was actively aiming for the ground, and I wanted to stay there. Uh, but the context, the situation, put in a lot of effort to keep me aloft. And I don't think everybody gets that opportunity. And so 
you know, I consider myself pretty lucky to have, have been in that situation. But again, this isn't about, you know, me, I, I got a PhD because I'm such a hard worker. It's about, I happen to be uh, in a place that supported my resilience. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Dan, because I think one thing that we have to fight against in in academia and really in, in a lot of spheres is this notion of work harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you want to succeed. If you just work hard enough, you'll get through. Uh, because I love that example that, that you shared. Sometimes we need someone else to help us bounce back up. Uh, we don't always have to do it alone. And sometimes you need those others in your community, professional or otherwise, um, to help you get there in, in times. And, you know, Dan, when we think about wanting students to succeed in graduate school, it's less about we need to pick the right students who are likely to succeed. But really, the, the conversation we need to be spending more time having is how do we support people? How do we support students to succeed in our program? How can we partner with them to help them get the support they need to advance through their training? And I think you do a lot of that in your, in your day job, Josh, and I think we do some of that here by making explicit what is expected in graduate school and, and not making it this sort of nebulous, everybody has to guess what it is you need to do to succeed. If I have to guess that I need committee meetings uh, and somebody else has figured it out, but I haven't, or, um, and I think some of the, the work you do to teach practical skills, some of these autonomous skills, you're teaching time management, you're teaching how to keep a lab notebook, you're teaching... Um, money management skills, all of these different autonomous skills that you need as a graduate student are, are part of these pillars that she talks about that are going to help every student succeed. And, you know, maybe some folks listening don't have easy access to those things, right? Maybe they're not... Many don't. ...in a, in a program <laughs> where these opportunities are coming at them left and right. And, and you know, Dan, we, did, you know, we went through our training in, in a different time. It wasn't in the Stone Age, but certainly I would say programs Bronze, were, <laughs> <Bronze age. laughs> were much less enlightened in some of, these, uh, some of these topics surrounding student support. But I think one of the things we did, Dan, that was critical, you know, you mentioned you had a moment where your PI boosted you back up. But I think related to what Adina was talking about, being more open with your failures, we were very open within with each other and within our own group about the challenges we were having. And I think that helped to break some of that stigma of our own independent failures and challenges because we were very open with each other about things we were going through and realizing that our peers were going through um, those things as well. And I know in the moment it maybe felt like we're just sitting around commiserating with one another, but I think in retrospect, there was a lot of benefit that came from those really open, transparent interactions um, that we had with each other. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think she said it really well when I asked her about how do you give a student a sense of belonging? And she said they have to be honest about their failures, which sounds counterintuitive, but that's exactly what we did, Josh. And I think that that did bind us together as a, a cohort in graduate school as students. You know, Dan, one thing I wanted to, to comment on was this feeling sometimes when you're a trainee, maybe even beyond that, I think I still have this feeling sometimes too, but really related to this imposter phenomenon, this imposter syndrome where, you know, you get there, you're a graduate student in a lab or a postdoc, and you look around, 
and you feel like everybody knows more than you or or you can't even imagine how you would even progress. How would I even get there to be a faculty member someday or be a scientist at a company? I feel like there's so much I don't know. Everyone's so much smarter than me. And I think what's important is realizing that you don't just blink your eyes and are magically transported from being a second-year grad student to running your own lab. Um, there's an activity that I do with with students when they come into my program where we get in a circle and I pull out some I pull out some bean bags. Let's say I pull out eight bean bags. And you know, I look at the 10 or so students in the circle, I say, All right, we're going to throw these bean bags back and forth from one person to the next across the circle all at once. Ready, go. And it's chaos and all the bean bags fall on the ground. There were no survivors, folks. <laughs> and and so I say, All right, well, after that, do you think it's possible we can get all eight of these bean bags crisscrossing the circle at one time. They're like, ah, I don't know if that's possible. That seems hard. Uh, so then what we do is we develop an order. Like I'm going to throw to you, Dan, then you're going to throw to Sue and then et cetera, et cetera. And we start with one bean bag and we get that going for a little while. And then I introduce a second bean bag and then a third bean bag. And we keep that going for a little while until eventually before you know it, we have eight bean bags that are tossing in in synchronous motion, whereas 10 minutes prior, we couldn't even imagine that we could get three beanbags going. And so the take-home message is, you know, if you start with step eight, it seems impossible, but our career doesn't work that way, right? We were an undergrad in the lab for the first time, and we learned a little bit of stuff. And then maybe we applied to grad school, and we started in grad school, and we learned some stuff. And then maybe we decide to do a postdoc, or we start a job, and, and we move on, and it's, it's stepwise, right? And so what we really, all we really have to be ready for is that very next step. That's all you're preparing for. We're not preparing immediately to be a PI and run our own lab today, right? Maybe someday we will, maybe someday we won't. But all that matters right now is, What's the next place I want to be, and am I ready for that? And do they do they absorb that, and 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 they can say to themselves, "This PI career looks so far off," but that's how it should be. It should feel like tossing eight beanbags at once to me, and so I don't need to be afraid of it, even though that is the truth from where I am standing right now. Yeah, and almost you know, I think it takes some worry away, some pressure off. Like, yeah, you don't have to be ready for that right now. You know, I think I think we can set goals and say, you know what, at this point in time, that seems kind of cool. I want to learn more about that. I want to move towards that, and I think that is a valid thing to do. Um, having goals and moving towards those goals is important, but what we're preparing for is the next step, the next tangible step, and that's really where our focus needs to lead, uh, or otherwise I think we can get overwhelmed and demoralized because we can't see how to get from point A to point G, but that's not how it works anyway. We don't have to do that. Nobody ever has to make that trip. Um, Josh, I, I think this is going to be helpful, and I hope that people will write to us and tell us about their experiences, their, their um, moments of resilience, of their failures where maybe they weren't resilient, of places where the academic world could have supported them and didn't or could have supported them and did. I'm, I'm really curious to see how this frame, this idea of this bouncing ball uh, resonates in, in people's actual experience. So uh, please write to us. And also, if you have people that we need to interview and talk to, we would love to hear about that. All right, Dan, as you mentioned, 
If you have questions or topics, we do want to hear them. And the way that we do that is for you to email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the banana beer money, and thanks so much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. I feel like if I want a piece of banana bread, I should just have that with my beer. I think I agree with you. I now feel then. that way about most dessert beers, but anyway, we're we're out of the ethanol subject, so I'll save that for another show. It didn't, I think I was like a bee or a butterfly in the in the beer store. I saw this bright yellow label, and I was just—I guess you could say—I made a beeline directly towards it. I assume you brought it home to have the diagram of how to open a banana <laughs> properly. You're studying it for an hour. Let's see this. No, not that end. I'm going to experiment over the coming days and weeks with opening my banana from the other end, and I will report back on my results. I'll hold you to it, Josh. We'll see you next time. See you next time.